and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 49, recorded on April 15th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And sorry if I sound a little sleepy today. I was up all night playing video games. No doubt taking advantage of this new tool made by Feral Interactive called Game Mode. What can I say, Joe? I'm committed to research for every episode of Linux Action News. Yeah, it's what Ike calls validation, I think, uh, when he's playing games. And he actually had something to do with this. Uh, That's part of the reason I wanted to mention this. If you look at the uh, GitHub, you'll see that quite a lot of the commits are from Ike. Oh, cool. I did not actually catch that. I was too busy actually testing it. So let me tell you the basic premises and warn you that it is early days. But the idea is so cool that I could think of it as more than game mode. I could think of it as development mode. I could think of it as system admin mode. But in its current incarnation, it's open source, and it's from the folks at Feral Interactive. And they're releasing it ahead of Rise of Tomb Raider's Linux release. And it's basic right now. It's a multi-part tool that's really designed to just take care of some of the most basic performance modes you can get out of your CPU. It does handy things like it tells your CPU to automatically run the performance governor in a mode that is highest performance rather than something like balanced or power saving. And it gets kind of neat because it has a front end and a back end, and you can set it up to automatically make these adjustments when you launch the game. But they have a plug-in architecture as well that could automatically enable other functionality down the road when you launch a game. And for that, the possibilities are endless. Yeah, now another reason that I wanted to mention this is because last week we were kind of down, weren't we, on Valve with their Steam machines and how Linux gaming in general isn't that important to a lot of people. But this kind of shows that a big player like Feral Interactive are obviously thinking about Linux. I also like thinking about other ways I could put my machine into a high-performance state by launching just one application. So with gaming, I could think of plugins they could add to game mode that would make it really useful. Uh, because the governor stuff, if you're gaming on a desktop PC, you you may already just have this hard set to performance mode. Why wouldn't you if you're a gamer? If they could do things like maybe change the Linux I.O. scheduler or disable my compositor's full-screen effects when a game is running automatically. like You could see lots of different plugins, maybe turn off certain services in the background. When I launch a game, turn off NFS, Samba, and my MB server. I don't want them taking up extra CPU while I'm gaming. And then as soon as the game closes, have Systemd automatically bring those services back up. Things like that are totally doable, and it's open source so the community can contribute back. Well, maybe this will turn out to be a big thing. We'll have to see. But Something else we've been pretty down on in the past is uh, ButterFS. And we've always kind of said, oh, well, ZFS, CFS, that's the way forward. You don't get any data loss or anything with that. Well, mm, that's not strictly the case unless you are totally up to date. This is an interesting bug that cropped up just on ZFS on Linux, did not affect the BSD variants, and it's because of a collision with a change in core utils upstream with a change in ZFS upstream, And neither one of them had anything to do with each other. It's kind of funny. The ZFS change was related to just handling case-insensitive file systems better. And the core utils change was a change to how CP worked when hashing the files that it was copying. These two changes came together to prevent what's called the ZFS attributes file from expanding properly. And when that couldn't expand properly and keep track of all the changes... My understanding is files just essentially got dropped on the floor. They were still moved, they still exist, but they were never added to the index of the file system. 
Now, the upstream developers, as of this recording, have a tool that they're working on to add those files back to the index, so there will actually be no data loss in totality. But what you get is a collision of two different upstream changes that really came together and collided on the most recent distributions, the most current RHEL snapshots and its derivatives, your Gen 2s, your Arch Linuxes. The Debian derivatives and Ubuntu were not affected because they were on ZFS 0.76. So the moral of the story here is if you're on a recent or a rolling distribution of Linux, you need to be on ZFS 0.7.8. You probably didn't lose any data. You can look further into the story if you think you might have. We will have links in the show notes. You go to linuxactionnews.com slash 49. Dig down in there. You will find the link to the thread where developers are talking about that tool that will pick those files up that got dropped and add them back into the index. But this, I think, Joe, might be our first kind of big ZFS on Linux bug-ish, which turned out to kind of be not that major, but it's still noteworthy, I think. Well, it's definitely noteworthy because of the criticism that um, ButterFS has had in the past. And I don't know, when you have a file system that is as complicated as ZFS, then surely you are sort of lining yourself up for these bugs and maybe there'll be other bugs in the future like no one could have really seen this coming whereas with a much simpler file system like ext4 which is what i use more or less everywhere or even xfs you're not going to have these problems are you fair enough and i think for uh, a lot of deployments like desktops and laptops extended 4 and xfs are the file systems to choose But the use case of the server, it's a totally different thing here. So the ButterFS bug that they really got the most criticism for was a flaw with their RAID 5, if I recall. That is a fundamental design flaw in the file system, where this bug was a two upstream issues that collided. It was technically, if CoreUtils hadn't made that change, this bug wouldn't have been invoked. And if ZFS hadn't made that upstream change to be more compatible with case-insensitive file systems, this bug wouldn't have been invoked. It, But it wasn't a design issue with how ZFS writes to the RAID array. It was simply two upstream projects collided on their changes. Yeah, well, call me a Luddite, but I'm sticking with the XT4 even on servers for now. <laughs> All right, you tell me how that works for you when you're dealing with hundreds of terabytes worth of data. <laughs> well, yeah, that is true. That is true. There are very strong arguments for using these uh, more modern file systems, but for the kind of deployments that I need, I just I can't justify the um, complication and risk, basically. You know, I can't really disagree if your use case doesn't require snapshots and compression and deduplication and copy on write. If you're if those things don't even seem like useful a- aspects of a file system to you, then you just need a good file system and a good backup, and you're pretty much set. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I t- I'm not saying that I couldn't take advantage of them, but you have to weigh up these pros and cons, don't you? And I think the, the complication aspect of it, you know, it, ZFS is something that does so many things that you can potentially do with other tools. And okay, maybe it's ultimately more complicated to use those other tools, but it's solving problems that can be solved in other ways that I'm used to solving them in that way, if that makes any sense. Actually does make sense to me because like when I'm working on a laptop with multiple drives or a, an editing rig that I want to uh, share storage, I find I'm actually still going to LVM more so than, say, a ButterFS volume setup or a ZFS pool. I just just know LVM. I know it works. And I just want XFS on my drives 
and LVM to just bring all the disks together. In some ways, I'm a lot like you in that respect. On my local workstations, if I was dealing with a large enterprise in a data center, hands down, no doubt about it, ZFS all day long. Yeah, I think ultimately I would be as well. But thankfully, I don't have uh, that much data to deal with. Thankfully, it's not your problem. (laughs) Yep. But something that Mozilla is trying to make their problem is the state of the internet, which they think is not great. Really, Mozilla is capitalizing on a perfect moment in time. Mark Zuckerberg just wrapped up his dominance of the news and his testimony for two days before the Senate and Congress. And the Mozilla Foundation is releasing their report that highlights the dangers posed by companies like Facebook to the internet about the centralization and concentration of control of how people experience the online world. And they say it's now in the hands of companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Twitter. This is the Internet Health Report, which they did a prototype of back in January 2017. And now they've released, I suppose, what's going to be an annual version of it now. This is the our take part of the show here. Uh, I went into this really wanting to like this report because they start out with calling out how uh, tracking your personal preferences and targeting ads and sort of making an echo chamber effect of the internet are bad things. I am so on board with that concept. I was like, yep, all right, I'll grab my pitchfork. Let me get the, uh, let me get the uh, kerosene. I'll get my matches. I'm ready to go, Mozilla. You've got my attention. That's the mindset I went in to this report with. And I walked out thinking, what the hell are they spending their money on? So they, 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 they spend a lot of time talking about, quote unquote, fake news, which is a politically charged term, which immediately kind of gets me upset because I think of Mozilla as a technology company. And now they're wandering off into the rabbit hole that never ends of politics, which can be a continuous money sink for these foundations. And they come back with Facebook dominating the web is a bad thing. Facebook tracking you and violating your privacy is a bad thing. And centralization of the web is a bad thing. Those are their fundamental takeaways in this Internet Health Report, which they say is not a metric-driven report. No, no, friends. That wouldn't make any sense. Instead, it's something that is more of an evaluation of what's helping and what's hurting the Internet. It should be called State the Bleeding Obvious Report, really, because, of course, Facebook is this hub for billions of people who, that's their first port of call. When they open a web browser, they go straight to Facebook And then everything goes from there. But for them to start making political statements like these companies should be broken up and regulated, is that really Mozilla's place to start talking about that stuff? I I don't feel like it is really. Yeah, let's talk talk about that, Joe. So that was sort of the takeaway is that fake news is bad, okay, and we should probably break up the monopolies, okay? And again... Part of me sits here and reads this and goes, God, they're, they're so right. Thank God somebody's saying this. I'll, I'll give you a line that I completely understand. They say, the network control of major internet services is only part of the grip they hold on our lives. The sheer size and diverse holdings of few companies, including Google, Facebook, and Amazon, have become intertwined with not only our daily lives, but with all aspects of the global economy civic discourse, and democracy itself. They are too big. And I, I 
part of me agrees. When I watched Mark Zuckerberg testify in what was almost half of the U.S. Senate, something really struck me, Joe. With half the U.S. Senate there, you know, you probably had representatives that in total represented 150, 170 million individuals. And you had Mark Zuckerberg, who represented about 2 billion individuals. In a lot of ways, Mark Zuckerberg has more influence over the population than those 44 U.S. senators did in different aspects of their lives. There's a real sense of power differential. Mark Zuckerberg was the most powerful person in the room of half of the U.S. Senate. And there is an actuality to that statement that is hard to ignore. And so to say that Facebook has too much power or too much influence over the Internet isn't an inaccurate statement. The real fundamental problem here is, is that Mozilla isn't bringing up anything new or isn't giving us anything actionable. Yeah, because it's a pipe dream, isn't it, to try and break up Facebook? I mean, that's just not going to happen. They're an American U.S. company dream. You know, a kid that started a company in the dorm of his college now is employing tens of thousands of people, making billions of dollars in revenue with billions of users. It's a great American accomplishment. There's no way you'd want to break that up right now. You just need to regulate. And that's where they're going with Facebook, for better or for worse. They're going for regulation. And that's what we're going to watch for a little while, is we're going to watch these companies fall under different areas of regulation. You know, you are probably thinking a lot of GDPR these days, Joe. You know, Facebook and Google have got to respond to that. Even Jupiter Broadcasting has to respond to GDPR. So it's going to be a couple of years of this. But do we need Mozilla to point that out? Uh, it, it just feels like that's not their place. I keep saying it, but that's their place is to concentrate on the web, okay, and, and keeping that free and everything. But surely they should be doing that by making a really good browser, not making political statements. Undoubtedly, that's the geek response. You and I, in our quote-unquote production meeting last night over Telegram, I made the comment, I would have loved if they took the the dozen or so of people that worked on this report and just hired one more Thunderbird developer. Yeah. You know, one more Firefox developer. Just give me one more person writing code. And that's that's just what I want to see from the Mozilla Foundation. But they have, if you recall their architecture, they have two different sides, right? They have this sort of more aspirational public foundation aspect of the Mozilla group. And then they have the development side of the shop. It's It really is a right and a left hand. Yeah, but even if they hadn't hired a developer with the money that they could have saved by not writing this report, maybe they could have spent that money on advocacy. They could have paid for someone to go around the world to conferences and sell Firefox to developers. Uh, I I could devil's advocate that. I could devil's advocate that. I mean, that seems pretty clear to me. Uh, You have to have something for them to cite. You have to give them some source material. And one does not preclude the other. You can have a report like this and you can still have advocacy. And having a quote-unquote foundational report is usually more credible than somebody's opinion. So there is a functional aspect to this that they could actually, boots on the ground, could utilize. Like this could become their weapons of knowledge that they use to convince people's opinions. I, I suppose that might be their hope. Uh, I think your, your first argument is better though. Is this their job? And I go back and I'll ask you this question. If Mozilla doesn't do it, and I'm not saying I want it to be Mozilla, But if Mozilla doesn't do this, who the hell else is going to do this? Nobody else is bringing these points up. I mean, you and I are, and and people that, you know, just follow this stuff are thinking about it. But there's no large established organization that is making these points in a way that is consumable 
by businesses and politicians. What about the EFF? This is their line of thinking, and this is their kind of beat, but they can only do so much, and they're not talking about this specific issue like Mozilla is in, in, in such a refined way, right? Because Mozilla is a position of authority on this topic, and they have this bullshit report that sells. I mean, that's the thing about when you're talking to a business, you're talking to a politician, having these quote-unquote reports that they've worked super hard on and put a lot of effort into are they're, they're sales material that people eat up. It, it starts the conversation. Yeah, well, Mozilla have got a lot of money sloshing around, and they've got to spend it on something, but I'm still not 100% convinced this is the kind of thing that they should be spending it on. LinuxAcademy.com slash Unplugged. Go there to support this show and sign up for a free seven-day trial of a platform that's built by Linux enthusiasts for Linux enthusiasts. And it is getting even better in the month of April. 70-plus new courses, challenges, and learning activities are coming to Linux Academy. 20 new courses, 50 new cloud assessments, hands-on learning activities, and new challenges. LinuxAcademy.com slash Unplugged. A full-featured training library with everything you need to learn new skills and advance your career. One of the best features that sets Linux Academy apart is their instructor mentoring. Full-time human beings that are there and happy to help you whenever you get stuck. And their hands-on scenario-based labs that give you experience on real servers. So that way when you go take the test or go do the work in the real world, you've seen it before. You've done it before. They have six plus Linux distributions that you can choose from. The servers and the courseware automatically adjust to the distribution you want to learn on. That's my favorite feature of all of them. And then if you're busy, you got a lot going on, they have a course scheduler. You set a time frame, it'll fit your schedule, and they'll create learning goals for you. And speaking of learning goals, they have a series of learning courseware for specific goals that you might have in mind. Like say you want to go down to a very specific niche of an area, they have learning paths that's great for that. Flashcards that get customized by the community. They have nuggets which are deep dives into single topics when you've got just a little bit of time. And if you're offline, they've got downloadable comprehensive study guides, lesson audio, and more. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplug. Sign up for a free seven-day trial, support the show, and there's a lot coming in the month of April. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, let's talk about Android security. And this week I saw quite a lot of buzz about this, and that is a fair number of Android OEMs are lying about the security patch levels. So if you go into the About phone or tablet and then look, you'll see security patch level, and it might say January 2018 or whatever. Well, quite a lot of OEMs on certain devices are just telling out-and-out lies about that. Yeah, even some of the popular devices. So this is research that was done by Hack in the Box, and they're preparing to give a big demo at a conference in Amsterdam. And they're from the security research firm, uh, Security Research Labs. And they, they're going to give a whole overview of the data. But Wired got early access to it. And going through it, they found what they called, the researchers, the patch gap. In many cases, certain vendors' phones would just straight up tell users that they had all of the Android security updates, that they were good to go. But in a lot of cases, in reality, they were missing as many as a dozen patches. They had the most recent quote-unquote security update 
but a subset of those patches would just simply not be installed. And so this they've nicknamed the patch gap. They tested the firmware of 1,200 phones from more than a dozen phone manufacturers for every Android patch released since 2017 from devices that were made by Google themselves, including the Pixel devices, and devices from Samsung down to the lower-end, lesser-known Chinese-owned devices, and some like the ZTEs and the TCLs, as well as in the mid-range, your HTCs and your Motorola. So it's a wide data sampling that they did this, and their testing found that other than Google's own flagship phones, like the Pixel and the Pixel 2, even top-tier phones, sometimes like ones from Samsung, failed to have all patches installed and they actually lack some significant ones. And then, of course, as you would expect, lower down the tier, it gets even worse. Well, it sounds very bad on the surface of things, but did you see what Google had to say in response to this? Yeah, I saw Google's response. So Wired reached out to Google and said, what do you guys think about this? And Google's response was so typical, it it sort of bothered me. First of all, they started with, oh, we appreciate their research, but they didn't understand the complexity of the Android environment. That was essentially their response. And they argued that in some cases, patches may have been missing from devices just because the phone vendors didn't have those features to begin with, so there was nothing to patch. Or, you know, some of these devices... They were never even certified by us to begin with, so you can't blame Android for that. But the researchers accounted for that, and their research shows that it's in in modern devices, like Motorola devices, Samsung devices, totally certified devices by Google. So in, in my reading, that explanation barely holds water. Yeah, but one of the other potential explanations here is that it's not necessarily the OEM's fault. If you look at some of the cheaper phones that have like MediaTek processors and stuff, MediaTek are pretty bad at supplying patches to the OEMs, so what can they do? Yeah, you are totally right about that. That's one of the things that this research truly demonstrates, is that the further down you go on the price, the bigger problem just licensing patches or getting that uh, that silicon vendor to write code become. And so if you have a Samsung device and Samsung is creating most of the chips, you are in the best position. If your device is loaded full of Qualcomm, you're in the next best position. It really begins to fall off. The worst offender is MediaTek. And now we have research data that clearly shows us that. And one of the things I appreciate about these researchers is they created visualizations to demonstrate this. We'll have a link in the show notes if you want to see that. And it, it's it's so obvious. When you see it compared, Samsung is doing the best here, as they should. They have unilateral control over a large portion of the silicon and the software. And MediaTek is doing the worst, which isn't surprising because they're the budget vendor. Yeah, whenever I see a phone, I think that it looks all right. And then I look down the specs and see MediaTek. And I say, no, thank you. Not interested. Yeah. And this research just justified that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that Google certifies certain devices and washes their hands of ones that they don't. Well, it looks like now with certain custom ROMs, you're going to struggle to use Google Play services, which if you are totally into freedom and just use an F-Droid, then it doesn't affect you. But if, like me, you're kind of half pragmatic and you do have Google Play services installed, then you're going to have one more hoop to jump through when you uh, install Lineage OS and other similar custom ROMs. Yeah, I bet this isn't too surprising to anyone that has been listening to this show for a few weeks. And we go to the Lineage blog, where they have broken down the state of play here. And they talk about Google Play certification, what it is, and how it affects you. And 
their explanation of why it was done in the first place reads a little ominous. And they note that this is speculation on their part, but they say that some OEMs may have been shipping devices that contain Google Play services without device certification, which lowers the trust for app developers in being able to rely on the quality of devices running with Google Play services installed. Well, may have been shipping. We know that they have been shipping. There's tons of devices coming out of China that have got Google Play services and you know all the Play Store and everything that are not certified by Google. So this isn't exactly news, is it? That aspect of this. What's news here is that Google are starting to actually do something about it. I agree. It's not news. In fact, it's it's super obvious to me. That's what's ominous about it. It to me reads as if the lineage team heard from somebody at Google. They came a knocking, and this is their response to it. Well, I don't think it's Google telling them. I think it's the community because people have been noticing over the last few weeks that certain devices and certain ROMs are just not working unless you take the Google Services Framework ID and go and register it on their certification page under your Google account. And I've actually been keeping an eye on this over the last few weeks, and it's only now that Lineage have actually posted about this that I thought um, we should talk about it because... It was kind of a bit speculative, but now it's there in black and white on Lineage's blog. It's a serious issue that people are going to have to deal with. I mean, I say serious issue. For now, it's just a case of one hoop that you have to jump through. But you you talk about it being ominous. And yeah, it might be a case that Google will just stop Google Play services working if it's not a totally official certified device, which is not very good for people like me who don't want all the bloat of all the various other Google apps that I don't need. I only need a few, Gmail and Maps and stuff. So I hope, I very much hope that this doesn't kill the custom ROM community. Because let's face it, how many people are running Google-less? Not very many. I know one failing from late night Linux, but most people in this whole community the first thing they do is flash Google Apps. So if that goes away, then it could just totally collapse as a community. You know, a year ago, I did an experiment of no G apps on my Nexus device, and it it didn't end up working out for me. But I did take away one thing. I I think I could have a two- or three-day battery life if I take off all of the Google Apps and the Play API. It's a significant difference in the battery life. Huge. That was my big takeaway. And so I've always kind of toyed with the idea of doing that again and just getting tremendous battery life out of my Nexus 6P and just extending it even longer. Uh, And I think we are getting a whiff of the way of the future here. This sort of continues a long-term trend we've seen with Android as they've pulled certain things out of the upstream and they've commercialized certain aspects of the Android ROM. Now we're going to have an official slot for the custom ROM community to fit in. You're going to be able to be uh, legitimate citizens of the Play ecosystem. Congratulations. You're also going to be controlled and over time systematically reduced in capabilities by Google. And I can't see it any other way. This has clearly been coming and now Lineage OS, because they don't want to be crushed by Google, is clearly playing ball to this. Yeah, well, I suppose we'll just have to stick to the stock ROMs or just not even use Android at all and just be uh, an Apple fanboy like you and use an iPhone. Absolutely. And I, I completely endorse Overcast. If you want to listen to this show every single week, overcast.fm or just go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes and listen to my Android hating ways. <laughs> 
and go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact if you want to criticize him for using an iPhone. And consider supporting the whole network because you agree with my Rebel Alliance and the Nano Nation. Nano-W for life, patreon.com slash Signal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.